Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When I interviewed him a little bit about the 1980s Cup winner, he felt more strongly about the overtime game two against Buffalo because him, because without that, maybe they don't even get to the Cup. Islanders country, hello. This is P.T. Isles, the unforgettable edition. I'm Miles Boggs, Joe Bono. A reminder, you can subscribe to this show and every Lighthouse Hockey podcast on iTunes. Please rate and review or find us on Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or over at LighthouseHockey.com. Lighthouse Hockey, your SB Nation home for your New York Islanders coverage. My guest tonight is Matthew Blitner, author of Unforgettable New York Islanders, which captures the most significant games and moments in the careers of the broadcasters, writers, scouts, PR directors, and former players that have been around the team for generations. Matt, how you doing? Thanks for doing this. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to our discussion. And Matt, this is the third installment for you. I know you've turned around three books in about 13, 14 months. You did Rangers, you did Devils, and, and now the Islander book. So I must ask, uh, saving the best for last, I guess? You could say it that way. Uh, for me, I view it more <laughs> as it brings my career full circle. Uh, I started out as a credentialed reporter in the 15-17 season covering the Islanders and then eventually moved on to covering the Rangers and the Devils, along with keeping you know all three intact. You know, I've always done all three throughout. And so doing the Rangers book and then the Devil's book and now the Islanders book brings it sort of back to the beginning of everything. So talk about the concept and how it came to you. I think I've 
had these moments in my life, and I'm sure other people listening have, where you're in bed one night and an idea pops into your brain and you can't help but want to act on it and see it through. So, you know, tell us how this concept came to be to where you ended up sitting down and, and uh, you know, knocking these books out in such a short period of time. Well, for me, it was uh, it started during the 1819 NHL season, right at the beginning. The New York Rangers, who were my primary beat at the time, the Islanders were my secondary beat, Devils third. Uh, I was, you know, I had found out that the Rangers were going to be having their 25th anniversary for the 94 Cup, and having worked for the hockey maven Stan Fischler for quite a while, you know, I had been around the whole book writing, being an author type of lifestyle, and I figured, you know, a book about the 94 team would be just a great thing, and, you know, the publicity for it would probably be huge, because the team was going to be capitalizing on that all year long leading up into the beginning of February when they were going to have an actual night and bring back the entire team and staff and all that. And so I pitched a couple different ideas, one centered around the focus on the core four of Messier, Graves, Richter, and Leach. Then, you know, the idea expanded to a couple other things. And then I realized, you know what, there's, always all these stories out there from former players about former players, but you never really hear the stories from the people who bring you the stories. Normally the writers and the broadcasts, you know, everyone reads the newspaper, reads some article online every day, or they watch or listen to the game on TV or radio. So they hear all these voices and they obviously depend on what team they root for. They felt they fall in love with some of these, people who bring them the games that they watch their entire lives. And so I think it would be a good idea to get their insight on everything. And again, being a member of the press, being part of the press box, you always hear all these stories of, I remember when I was at this game and this happened and this was the inside scoop on this. So I just ended up figuring, you know what, this is a unique idea that, you know, no one's really ever done something from this angle before. And, I believe I started that book right around Thanksgiving. Uh, I know the first interview was with Kenny Albert, and then I had it out a couple months later, right in time for the Rangers ceremony. And then one night I was sitting in the MSG media room with Steve Tangelosi, who's the Devils play-by-play, and he was asking me about the book, and I told him that I was looking to do a second. I wasn't sure which to do, to do whether the Islanders and then the Devils, or do the Devils and then the Islanders. And he made some good points on the accessibility of certain people and teams. And so I decided to do the Devils. And then once I had the Devils done, which came out back in middle to end of this past September, I said, you know what, got to get the Islanders in. And again, it brings my career full circle because I started out as an Islander writer as the first thing that I ever covered. So it really just fit everything in nicely at that point. And uh, to give everyone listening kind of a breakdown about how the book is formatted. So for this Islander book, you have 23 different interviewers, interviewees. And uh, in each one, you've asked them similar questions in terms of what they're, you give their background about who they are, how they came about their profession and their role in covering the Islanders then you ask them to specifically to talk about one game that is most memorable or unforgettable to them. And then you ask them um, a picture is worth a thousand words, which is, which, which is I guess, another uh, specific you know, memory of, of them that they recall during their time around the team. Um, and just uh, some of the names 
Uh, Larry Brooks, which maybe people don't initially think with Islanders, but, you know, Larry's been around the Islanders in NHL for a long, long time. Uh, Brendan Burke. After he started his career with the Islanders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Larry Larry Brooks, Brian Compton, Brian Compton's uh, father, Eric, um, who I, I did not know until I started reading this book that Brian's dad was a sports writer. I, I, did, I did not know that. Uh, Stan Fischler, of course, Alan Hahn, Shannon Hogan. Uh, Bobby Nystrom, Howie Rose, John Sterling, Arthur Arthur Staple, Ed Westfall, and a, and a, and a bunch of others. Um, and and as I was saying, in each one of these, I already got some kind of, um, you know, reading some of these, I really found some little, you know, fun little nuggets in each one of their, you know, memories. Um, you know, Arthur Staple, for instance, uh, talking about how his most memorable game that he talked about was Game Three of the 2013 Stanley Cup playoffs at the Coliseum, Islanders Penguins. And it wasn't necessarily the part about the game uh, that blew my mind, but he was saying that in, before game two in Pittsburgh, he got a text message from the Islanders telling him to meet at a gym. And he ended up playing a pickup basketball game with Brent Thompson and, and Garth Snow and, and, and members of the Islanders front office. Uh, it's a pretty cool story. Yes. Uh, you know, it was something that Arthur said he had always, you know, Jack Capuano, who was the coach at the time, had been very uh, superstitious. And so in order to sort of relieve the stress on days off, they would get together and play basketball, something that they really did throughout the season and not just that year, but other years too. And, you know, as he put it, you know, some of these people are former hockey players, uh, whether they made it to the NHL or not. Some of these people are you know, getting up there in age a little bit, so it maybe wasn't the crispest uh, street type of basketball game that you would picture of if you walked around and found a bunch of 20-somethings playing, but they had fun with it. They might have been a little bit sore afterwards, but it gave them a good idea of, you know, how the players felt a little bit, because if they felt that sore after just a little pick-up basketball, you imagine how the players were feeling after a brutal hockey game, especially in the playoffs. Um, And one thing just to mention as well with the format of the book in the back as well are messages from each person who I interviewed for them to give a heartfelt message to the Islander fan base as sort of a way for them to give back to the fans who have followed them throughout their respective careers. We'll have more of our interview with Matthew Blitner in a moment. You're listening to PT Isles, part of the Lighthouse Hockey Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're talking with Matthew Blitner, author of the book Unforgettable, New York Islanders. And um, it's funny you mentioned about author talking about, you know, feeling a little worse for wear, a little tired. You know, that was a shortened season. And um, I guess in other years he had, you know, picked certain pockets of the season where he didn't travel with the team. But because it was a shortened year, you know, he pretty much went on every single road trip and then right into the playoffs. And, And Brian Compton, too, talked about the fact that, you know, going into a playoff series and all the travel involved, if you're not really used to it the way players are, that can be really grueling. And it seemed like he was pretty exhausted from that six-game series against the Panthers in 2016. 
absolutely. It's something that a lot of people don't really realize about the sports media world. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're sitting there at the game, you're interacting with the players and the coaches, you get to watch the game for free, and then you write up something, or if you're on TV or radio, you're talking about it on whichever forum you're on, and okay, so it's got to be easy because it's just something that, you know, you guys start doing something that millions of people would love to do. But it really does take a grueling grind on you because there's just so much more that goes into it between the morning skates, the day of the game, well, the night of the game, sometimes you have a day game, and then the constant travel, it really does put a lot on you. I've done three playoff seasons now, one each for each of the teams, Rangers, Islanders, and Devils, and you know, just even if they've only gone one round, you know, if the round goes six games, it can be pretty tiring by the end of a season. So it's something that really brings a human element into it and a side that maybe people, I guess, overlook a little bit about the people who are bringing them these stories that they're reading or hearing or watching. Another story that kind of came about, and, and, and for me, I didn't know who this person was, Holly Chester III who was a member of the team's PR staff in the inaugural 1972-1973 season. And his most memorable game was memorable and unforgettable for him because it was a game he almost dressed for. So maybe you could give fans a little bit of the background there as to why a member of the uh, PR staff almost ended up uh, dressing uh, for the Islanders in that first year. Right. So Holy Chester III, he was – the Islanders' first PR director, he ran their entire PR department from 72 to about right before the dynasty, really. Uh, so he had a nice stretch there with the team. And towards the end of that inaugural season, the Islanders were besieged. Some players were sick. Some players were injured. Uh, if people remember correctly, the Islanders weren't exactly a very good team at that point. So it was sort of just one of those Murphy Law type of things, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So they go into Minnesota to play the North Stars, and they just, they're beat up, they're banged up. They've got maybe 15 healthy bodies at that particular time. And you've got situation of, you know, who's going to fill in all the ice time here? You know, you're playing down quite a few players at this point. And so Bill Torrey, who was the GM at the time, had approached Holly Chester III about, listen, you know, you played hockey in college. Uh, we're going to need you to suit up tonight. We're going to sign you to a one-day contract. And, you know, we're just going to need you to eat up some time there and just suit up and do your best here at that point. But Chester just had a big meal at the dinner, and he didn't have any of his skates with him or any of his shin pads or any type of equipment with him. So he, I don't want to say begged off of it, but he basically said that he wasn't going to do it. And so he was sitting up in the press box during the game when the Islander goalie took a penalty. And obviously, as we know, goalies do not leave the crease to go to the penalty box to serve a penalty. So someone's got to serve it. The Islanders are already down multiple men at this point. So they ended up having to send somebody into the, press, into the penalty box in order to serve the penalty. And Hawley realized, you know, that would have been him. They would have taken the spare yeah. person, which would have been him, and mm-hmm. he would have had to cross the ice, go into the penalty box, serve the time, and then when the penalty is over, skate out onto the ice, which <laughs> means that you're recorded into the game. You're officially logged in as a player or in the annals of the NHL and then skate over to the bench. So 
you know, he passed up the opportunity, and it was just something that always stuck with him about, you know, he could have been what we think would have been the first PR director to suit up. You know, we've heard of coaches suiting up. We've heard of, you know, in this day and age, emergency goalies having to suit up. Uh, we have not yet found any PR directors who have had to suit up. So it could have been a potentially unique situation. And as Islander fans know, we have to have goalies become GMs. So, um, you know, <laughs> we can have PR directors maybe be players uh, at some point as well. Um, although I don't think that's going to happen in, in the year 2020 and beyond. But um, missed opportunity there. Um, I think probably one of the biggest surprises for me in, in, in the book, Matt, was when you interviewed Bobby Nystrom and the fact that 7-Eleven of overtime on May 24th, 1980 was not the game he talked about, which was a surprise that scoring the game-winning Stanley Cup goal in 1980 to start the dynasty was not the game he talked to you about in this book. So just for some perspective, he did indeed talk to me when I interviewed him a little bit about the 1980 Cup winner, but he really felt more strongly about the overtime game two against Buffalo because it was just something that really stuck with him because without that, maybe they don't even get to the cup. I mean, granted, it is game two in the series, so it's not like you can say, well, you know, they lose the game, they're out. But it was just something that because of the timing in the playoffs of when it happened, that really stood out to him. And it was just more of a play that really meant something more to him than the now famous play in which she scored the Stanley Cup winner. So for him, it was just a matter of personal preference. Um, and I know people might, as you said, be a bit surprised, but it was just something that he really felt very passionate about for that particular game because, again, without that, who knows, maybe the dynasty never gets kick-started in the first place. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, a lot of fans know 1979 ended in – such incredible disappointment for the Islanders losing uh, to the New York Rangers and John Davidson. Um, and um, there was a lot of questions as to whether or not that team could get over the hump and, and win a Stanley cup. So um, to take that early, you know, two Oh series lead and win that game in overtime was huge for that, for that team and their confidence um, in the, in the Stanley cup playoffs. A- any conversations really strike you as a surprise as you went through these you know, 23 different interviews, probably a combination of some over the phone, some in person, maybe some over email, I'm not sure. But um, did anything kind of come out that really jumped out at you that was a, was a surprise and, and kind of took, took, took you back? Well, I don't know if I would classify any as a surprise necessarily, but it was certainly nice to hear from both Larry Brooks, who was the beat writer uh, back in the mid to late 60s, and Pat Calabria, who was also a beat writer around that same time. And they were both fairly early in their careers at that particular time in their lives. And they were around the same age as most, not all, but most of the Islander players. So, you know, when you think about the reporter-player relationship that we all know of today, you know, the media are very, you know, they're darted away from the players to an extent by the PR staff of teams. You know, there's not a whole lot of, interaction outside of the locker room or special events or anything like that. But for Brooks and Calabria, they actually would go out drinking with the players, go on double dates with the players, you know, go out and just hang out with the players. They were buddies with them. They were around the same age. Uh, 
I don't remember which one of them it was who said it. I think it was Brooks, if I remember correctly, who said that after games, especially a home game on a Friday or Saturday night, first question in the locker room wouldn't be, you know, so what do you think of this play in the game? It would be, so boys, where are we going tonight? And not to seem that, you know, people weren't doing their jobs because obviously people were doing their jobs and very professional at that. It was just a different time when the reporters and the players could be friends with each other. And, in fact, both of those writers were the only writers invited by the players to the Islanders' 1980 Stanley Cup after party, after they had, uh, you know, when they went out celebrating after winning the Cup. I'm sure there were other media who eventually did get invited, but in terms of being invited directly by the players, that's something extra special, and they were able to hang out with them and really get to know the guys off the ice and get to know them on a personal level, not just as a guy with a jersey on his back and a stick in his hand. And it seems like, you know, hockey players, maybe more so than other players, are the most accommodating or friendly. I know that's been kind of the reputation from afar and even something that I, you know, went through when I covered games uh, back for WFUV. Uh, when I was in college and, and even afterwards for, for Fox Sports. Um, you know, and you, you're getting and you're speaking to journalists and, and broadcasters that kind of span a very large spectrum. You you talk to John Sterling, you talk to Harry Rose, you talk to Brendan Burke, you talk to Alan Hahn, you talk to Larry Brooks, as you mentioned. Um, you know, is there a general kind of sense in terms of how – uh, the profession has changed and, and, and anything that came out of the stories they told or, you know, the type of access they had or the relationships they had with the players that you think is, you know, very, very different now than it was even even a decade ago? Well, yeah, so everything, obviously, as time goes on, things change. That's a given. But the access to the players is a lot more restricted now, just in nature, you know, with social media and, the advent of the smartphone and everything, you know, players have to be protected to an extent because they can't have, you know, let's say a thousand fans at a bar or something taking photos of them or going up to them or a reporter who maybe doesn't have uh, the most scruples about certain things. You know, they need to be guarded on, on certain things because everything that they would do would get out there just way too quickly and create too much of a wildfire storm. It's not something that would work in today's day and age. Uh, I know he's not in any of the three books, really. In fact, he doesn't cover any of the three teams, but Hall of Fame NHL writer Jim Matheson, who covers the Edmonton Oilers, uh, I remember having a chat with him quite a while ago, and he said, you know, I used to go into the locker room before the game, pull up a chair next to Gretzky or Messier or Coffee or someone, just chat with them. Hey, how you, how you doing? You know, what did you do last night? You know, have you seen any good shows recently? And then, you know, after the game, if he didn't get everything that he needed for whatever story it was that he was writing, he would call up one of the players or something, call them up directly and say, hey, listen, you know, I have this one last question and be able to do so. Nowadays, that would be unheard of. First of all, there's no free game locker room access except under special circumstances, if there's a ceremony or something. And then in terms of post-game, you know, you're not calling up a player after the game is over to find out something. You'd have to put in the request with PR staff. PR staff would get to the player. The player would, maybe they would say yes to PR staff. PR staff would probably ask a question for you and then send you via email or text or something. 
it's just a very different world that we live in. And yes, certain things needed to change, but it's just a very different atmosphere from how things were done in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s. A couple more questions for Matthew Blitner, author of Unforgettable, New York Islanders. You can find the book on Amazon. And, um, you know, a couple other tidbits that were, that were fun and interesting for me. One was around Howie Rose, and, you know, his favorite game was the Bates penalty shot and, and that call against the Maple Leafs in, in game four at the Coliseum. Um, what I thought was, was interesting is he talked about how for the first six years of him being the Islanders announcer, whenever they had ceremonies, he was never asked to MC. And he kind of understood it because he was still known as the Rangers announcer at the time. Of course, the in, you know I was going to say infamous, <laughs> but famous Matteau, Matteau goal um, in the Eastern Conference Finals back in 1994. And, and how much it meant for him that the Islanders allowed him to finally MC. Brian Trottier ceremony. I thought that was really a, you know, a touching little tidbit there from Howie. Yes, Howie's been great. He's actually in two of my books, Rangers and the Islanders. And, you know, for him, he was also friends with Trottier. So that was definitely played a part in getting him to be the MC for it. And they figured enough time had passed where, you know, he's probably been accepted. And as he even mentioned, the cheer that he got when he came out onto the ice to MC was, you know, it really showed him how much the Islander fans had appreciated him and going to love him at that particular point. So, you know, how he served in that role with the Islanders for close to two decades, really. Yeah, and he really eventually settled into the role nicely. And I know Mets fans are enjoying him now. And so it was just something that really – showed him that he was finally a part of this organization, part of this tradition of great Islander announcers, whether it's Jed McDonald or Howie or now Brendan Burke, and obviously plenty of others. Uh, the list would go on for too long. So it was just really nice to hear him, you know, really speak to such an emotional moment. And last one for me, Matt, you talked about Stan Fisher a couple of times, and I know you worked uh, for the Fishler's Report, and, you know, it seems like he was an inspiration of yours and obviously all the books that uh, Stan has written, both on hockey and other subjects. Um, Stan, Stan's most memorable or unforgettable game, I should say, uh, was the Easter epic um, four-overtime game, Islanders-Capitals ending on the Pat LaFontaine goal and talks about how he wanted to get a good night's sleep, but uh, um, someone called and he had to do an interview instead. Yes, well, actually, the great story from Stan in that it actually from during that game, uh, sometime during the early overtime, it was either the first or second overtime, he couldn't quite remember, he was getting so into the game. If anyone's ever seen Stan sitting in the stands at Nassau Coliseum or at Barclays Center, you see he gets very emotional into it. You know, he's very much into the Islanders trying to will them to success. And so he was sitting in the TV studio at the, you know, at the game, and he's trying to make the saves for the Islanders. He's, you know, he's watching the game on this monitor, and he's trying to make the saves <laughs> and everything. And he's getting so exuberant that he falls backwards. And, you know, in the studio, there's this concrete wall and floor. And, you know, if he's going to fall backwards and hit his head, might, you know, this might not end well for the Maven. And his, TV producer 
dove and quickly grabbed him right before he would have cracked his head on the concrete. So it could have been a very, very, very long night for all involved with that game, uh, considering how much he meant to the Islanders and their broadcast and the Islander fans at that particular time. So, you know, for every Islander fan who, you know, maybe they throw the remote at the TV or something when watching a game out of frustration, just remember, you're not the only ones doing so because sometimes the broadcasters and the analysts get that way too. Now that's a lot of, that's a really funny story about Stan. And then, you know, he talks about that uh, after the game, finally gets back to the hotel and he's looking to finally go to sleep after the game ends in the wee wee hours of the morning. And then he gets a call that Bob Braceman of the New York Daily News wants to do an interview. And he decided to give that interview and then he just couldn't sleep the rest of the night. He was too, um, you know, the adrenaline I think was still going. Uh, so, so Matt, listen, um, really congratulations on the book. Love the concept. And I think you've done a great job, you know, capturing unforgettable moments that are going to be shared by a lot of fans. And it really does span the entire, you know, the complete history of the New York Islanders in terms of touching on teams from the early seventies, the cup years, uh, the early 2000, when the team kind of came back after missing the playoffs for so long, the 2013 team, 2016 team, and then even Brendan Burke talking about how it felt to come back to Long Island and uh, back to the Nassau Coliseum after a couple of years over in Brooklyn. So, again, congratulations on the book. It's called Unforgettable, the New York Islanders. And, and Matt, continued success, and we wish you the best of luck on this. Certainly, I think Islander fans and all hockey fans could use the distraction right now. Thank you very much. And, you know, I hope Islander fans enjoy it and go out there and, and you know, relive the glory days because who knows, some, maybe the glory days are coming back around. We'll see. 